I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 9. We've still got two verses left of Jeremiah, chapter 9, and we're going to delve into Jeremiah, chapter 10, this morning, starting today right where we left off in verse 25. Last week, we looked at just two verses, verses 23 and 24. I read them at the head of our uh, service this morning. And they taught us to not boast about ourselves, our smarts, our strength, or our stuff. But instead, to boast about this, and we've been trying to do this all morning, that we know the Lord and how great He is. We know His heart. He delights in kindness, justice, and righteousness. Well, sadly, the nation of Judah was not very interested in following that teaching. No, they were tempted and instead to talk up and trust in and boast about everything but the Lord himself, including the temple of the Lord, the law of the Lord, and even, we're going to find out today, the circumcision given by the Lord. Everything but the Lord himself. And they were also enamored with the gods of the surrounding nations and tempted to put their faith and their fear in them. And and so therefore, judgment was coming upon Judah. And the prophet Jeremiah had been sent to tell them, to warn them. These words in Jeremiah 9 and 10 are meant to be a warning to Judah, warning them about what not to do, And showing them the better way that they ought to take. And you and I can learn from these words for our lives today. Let me read to you the last two verses of chapter 9 and the first two verses of chapter 10. And then I'll explain this uh, sermon title that might have caught your attention. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch. Never used that sermon title before. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 25. Let's read. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the desert in distant places. For all these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. Hear what the Lord says to you, O house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations. Or be terrified by signs in the sky, though the nations are terrified by them. So, here's the question I want to start with this morning. It's not a trick question, really, but it might be a little tricky. So, don't just blurt out your answer. Here's the question. How powerful are idols? How powerful are idols? I-D-O-L-S. How powerful are they? How powerful were these other gods that the nation of Judah was so tempted to worship? What do you think? They were certainly tempted to worship them, weren't they? In this section of Holy Scripture, Jeremiah has only one major command for the people of Judah. I just read it in chapter 10, verse 2. Do not learn the ways of the nations 
or be terrified by signs in the sky, though the nations are terrified by them. He's talking, of course, again, about idolatry. The ways of the nations were not how they built roads, but the ways they worshipped other gods than Yahweh. The ways that the nations bowed down to Baal, or Ashtoreth, or Molech, or the queen of the heavens. The other nations lived in terror of the gods. The gods of the sky, like the sun and the moon and the stars. The nations lived in fear of astral deities. They read their horoscopes every day. And they studied astrology. I hope you don't read your horoscope, except for a laugh. And they made idols and worshipped them. And the people of Judah were sorely tempted to be jealous of the nations and want their gods for themselves. And so they gave in time and time again. So let me ask you again, how powerful are idols? In chapter 10 of Jeremiah, he uses incredibly funny satire to answer that question. <laughs> Jeremiah pulls out some sarcasm. Anybody's love language sarcasm? <laughs> Jeremiah uses some here. He pulls out some sarcasm with an image that will really stick in your mind. He says, look at verse 5. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. Hmm. So does that answer the question? You might put it this way. Idols are powerful to bird brains. <laughs> no offense to birds, of course, or their brains. They're made that way. They're supposed to be like that. If this translation is correct, and there is some ambiguity in the Hebrew, right, Jeff? Yeah. Jeremiah likens idols to scarecrows in a melon patch. Or some of your translations might say a cucumber field. Same difference. Idols are scarecrows at a fruit farm. Okay? That's the picture. How powerful, how powerful is a scarecrow? Well, if you think it's powerful, it's kind of powerful. Right? But it's all just appearances. When you actually study a scarecrow, you find out they don't do anything. Because they don't have a brain, right? If they only did, right? They don't have anything. They aren't alive. Unlike the one in The Wizard of Oz or the one in Batman, scarecrows in the real world aren't very scary if you know the truth about them. Verse 5 again. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. I've got just two simple points of application this morning, and this is number one. Number one, do not fear idols. If you're taking notes, that's point number one. Do not fear other gods than Yahweh. Do not fear idols instead of the Lord. Now, of course, that's just so basic, right? So rule number one. In fact, it's rule number one and rule number two from the Ten Commandments. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. Second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is basic stuff. Rule number one, rule number two, do not fear idols. And by fear, we basically mean worship. Do not trust them. Do not bow down to them. Do not build your life around them. Do not do what they tell you to do. This is basic stuff, and yet the nation of Judah had been continually tempted to do this and repeatedly succumbed to the temptation. That's how they got where they are. And so Jeremiah and many other Old Testament writers repeatedly took them to task, and often with this biting sarcasm. This disdain for and satire about idols is a regular feature of the Old Testament. This afternoon, read Isaiah 40 again. Read Isaiah 41. Read Psalm 115. Read Psalm 135 and see what the Old Testament has to say about these idols. Idols are something that it is right and good to poke fun at. So if this is your love language, have a blast. Biblically sanctioned. Because an idol is like a scarecrow in a melon patch. Let's back up and see just how Jeremiah got to that scathing simile. Back up to chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. The point of these two verses is to lump Judah in with the other nations so they desperately, that they desperately wanted to be like. But it's not going to turn out good for them. Verse 25, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish... All who are circumcised only in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the desert in distant places. Did you know that some other nations practiced this kind, some kind of circumcision? They did. It wasn't just Israel that did that, but, but it meant something different for Israel than it meant for them. Israel's circumcision meant that they belonged to Yahweh. They were His people marked out as his. But they had begun to trust in the outward sign of circumcision, just like they had begun to trust in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah says, no, 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 no. That outward circumcision without inward circumcision, or, or for us, that outward baptism without that inward baptism, it's no good. It's worthless. And did you see how Judah gets just lumped in with Egypt? Judah is just in the list with Egypt and Edom and Ammon and Moab. Jeremiah says, you want to be like those guys? Well, I guess you are. And you're going to get what they're going to get. Verse 26, for all these nations, including Judah, are really uncircumcised. And even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. Why? How, how did he know that? Because they were worshiping idols from their hearts. And Jeremiah says, no, stop, don't go there. 
Repent. Yahweh says, return to me. Chapter 10, verse 1 again. Hear what the Lord says to you, O house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations. Or be terrified by signs in the sky, though the nations are terrified by them. Why? For the customs of the peoples are worthless. Now stop there for just a second. I believe that Jeremiah has at least three reasons here why Judah should immediately stop and repent of fearing idols. The first is that they're worthless. <laughs> idols are worthless. The Hebrew word there is the word that Ecclesiastes uses to describe the vanity and emptiness of life without God, chabel. And it basically means nothing or empty or hollow or even a vapor. You know how in the Wizard of Oz, he takes like the stuffing out of him and he's still running around and he's fine? It's because there's nothing in him, right? There's nothing in him. There's nothing in the idols, not really. It, it, it basically means a vapor or a breath. So this is what Jeremiah, this is what Yahweh thinks of the idols. <laughs> That's how worthless they are. That's how, they're worth about a belch. And then he gets really satiric. And he begins to show just how silly idols are. Verse 3, the customs of the people are worthless. Here's how worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest. And a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it will not totter. You get the picture? To get an idol, you got to do a lot of work. Joe takes his saw. Right? And he goes out in the woods. I'm not saying that Joe builds idols, just to, be, just to be clear about that, right? But to get one, you cut down this tree, timber, and then you cut it up. And then you got to get a chisel, okay? I'm not exactly sure what a chisel is, but I know my son makes them, okay? So there's some kind of tool for working with wood, cutting stuff off of stuff. And you work that into a shape, maybe like a, a human shape, or some kind of bird, or maybe like an astral deity or whatever you think it is a star and then you deck it out with silver and gold and then you bow down to it you have to nail it in place though or maybe the wind will blow it over do you see how worthy these idols are they're worth the worth you give them if you pour out your sweat and your cash, they're receiving worth from you. But they don't give any true worth to you. No value added from having an idol in your life. Because they're not just worthless, they're powerless. Verse 5 again, like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm nor can they do any good. That's double powerlessness, isn't it? They can't help you. And you know what? They can't hurt you either. You got to carry them from place to place. Like when they pick up the, the scarecrow because he's in two parts, right? And they carry him along. Idols don't carry you anywhere. 
You have to pull up the nails and then put, move the, to move the scarecrow to another field if you want to do anything about the crows there. So don't for a minute be scared of them yourselves. Do not be afraid of the scarecrows in the melon patch. They can't do a blessed thing against you or for you. Do you believe that? <laughs> we all say we do. Everybody's like, yeah, uh-huh. As long as it's gods like Baal and Ashtoreth and Molech. I don't think any of us here are building physical idols like these in our backyards. If you are, the elders of the church need to have a word with you. But idolatry is sneaky, isn't it? It's not just out there. It's also in here. The New Testament says that God's people are still tempted to fear idols, but they have different names, like money. You cannot worship both God and mammon. Covetousness is idolatry, the New Testament says. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Or they go by the name pleasure. Our culture has made an idol out of all kinds of pleasure, especially sexual pleasure. Or autonomy. You can't tell me what to do. Or here's another one. This is the one that really tempts me. I've said it before. Approval. I like to be liked. I love to be loved. I crave approval. I fear it. I make it my God. And when it becomes an idol for me, I find myself bowing down to it. What is it for you? What idols are you tempted to fear? Here's how you can tell. You can tell by how they make you act when you're under their sway. When you fear something, it changes how you behave. It shapes your choices. If you find yourself sinning, you're probably trying to serve some idol erected in your heart. If you find yourself obeying and practicing wisdom, you're probably fearing the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I know that when I'm worshiping the God of people's approval, I find myself tempted to not say and do the things that I should say or do because I might not get approval's blessing. I fear it. It controls me to my shame. But Jeremiah would say to me, Matt, do not fear people's approval. It can do no harm and it can, can't do you any good. That's not where the power lies. Remember, false gods never fail to fail. False gods never fail to fail. They never fail to let you down. False gods never deliver on their promises. They are powerless like scarecrows in a melon patch. Let me give you the third reason, real quick, that Jeremiah gives Judah to not fear idols before we get to the last point this morning. Jump down to verse 8. They, that is the nations, are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden Idols. Idols are not just worthless, same word there, and they're not just powerless, they are senseless. And that doesn't mean that they just don't have senses, like they can't see or hear, but that they're stupid. They're dumb. 
Like the scarecrow, they don't have a brain. In fact, they're blockheads. They're made of wood. So why would you want to be taught by something made of wood? If you're taught by a block of wood, you become a blockhead yourself. The nations, Jeremiah says, were blockheads. And Judah wanted to be a blockhead too. Ooh, I want to get me some of that, Judah said. Which is just so foolish when they have a God like Yahweh. That's point number two and last this morning. Fear the Lord alone. Fear the Lord alone. Look, up, look back up at verse 6. No one is like you, O Lord. You are great. And your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you, O King of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. And all will see how great, how great is our God. The Lord alone should be feared because he is all alone in a class by himself. The Lord is incomparable, or if you say incomparable, he's both of those. No one is like you. This, this is a reason why we call idols false gods. Not just because they lie, but because they're nothing like the real God. Jer Jeremiah has to pray these words to God. He, he can't just tell the people. He's got to tell the Lord. He can't help but break out in praise. No one is like you, O Lord. You are great. And your name is mighty in power. Who should not Revere is fear. Who should not fear you, O king of the nations? Everybody ought to. This is your due. Among all the wise men in the nations and in all of their kingdoms, there is no one like you. Search the world over and you will not find a God like Yahweh. The idols are worthless. He's incomparably valuable in a class by himself. Secondly, he is powerful. The idols are powerless, but God is powerful. He says, your name is mighty in power. See, idols have to be made, but the true God is unmade and makes everything else. Look at verse 8 again. They are all senseless and foolish. They're taught by worthless wooden idols, hammered silvers brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. What the craftsmen and the goldsmith have made is then dressed in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. Very impressive. But you have to do all the work. Verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. The eternal God. When He is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure His wrath. Who made God? Sometimes a little kid will ask that question and a parent might get immediately stumped. Well, if God made everything, who made God? And some philosophers think that they can stump Christians by asking that question too. Like it's a, it's a hard one. It's actually a very simple one. Nobody. Nobody made God. He's the true God. It's what it means to be God. He's the living God. He's the eternal King. That means He always was. And it means He always will be. 
Just because we can't comprehend it doesn't mean it ain't true. Yahweh is everything that these idols are not. Judah was taken with them because they were tangible and right there in front of them and they were jealous of the other nations and because they believed the lies that came with the idols and because they were shiny. Right? I mean, who doesn't like a bright and shiny thing? Silver and gold and blue and purple. Woo! Regal. Did you ever shop for something and be totally swayed by how shiny it is? I'll I'll buy that car because it's the shiny one, right? Never mind what's under the hood. The internet is great at this, makes the product look great, and then it comes in the mail, and you're like, oh, that's it? That's what idols are like but not the Lord. He's not worthless, he's true. He's not powerless, he's mighty. In fact, he made everything that there is. Look at verse 11. This verse is in Aramaic in the original. Verse 11, tell them this, Judah. Judah, these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth, there's the dig, will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. They are so temporary because they're a part of creation. But God is the creator, verse 12. But God made the earth in his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. He is not just powerful. He's all-powerful. Everything you see came from him. You people out there that are enjoying the beautiful sun and and the wind out there, he made all of that. Not Baal. Baal was the supposed storm god. Jeremiah says that Baal didn't do squat. He doesn't control the weather. And neither, as we know, does weather.com. The Lord controls the weather. Don't be terrified by signs in the sky. Fear the one who made the sky. Did you notice how he made it? He made it with wisdom and understanding. The idols are senseless and foolish, but the Lord, he is wise. He's no blockhead. Are you getting all the contrasts? I've been trying to emphasize them here. The idols are worthless. The Lord is incomparably valuable. The idols are powerless. The Lord is the powerful creator of all. The idols are senseless and foolish. The Lord is unimaginably wise. Idols are scarecrows in a melon patch. But the Lord is the portion of Jacob. Look at verse 14. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. His images are a fraud, and they have no breath in them. They are worthless, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these. For he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. Amen? Hmm. Fear the Lord alone. Mock your idols if that helps you to repudiate them. And fear the Lord alone. I love that title that he's got for himself, the portion of Jacob. 
I almost entitled this sermon, The Portion of Jacob, but I couldn't pass up on the melon patch. The Hebrew word for portion, chelek, is the idea of an allocation of territory parceled out to someone, often as their precious inheritance. We saw it used again and again in the book of Joshua as they came to possess the promised land. But Jeremiah says that the Lord did not just give them the land, he gave them himself. What's their portion? He's their portion. He belongs to them. That's amazing language, isn't it? We tend to think about the second part of that verse, that God's people belong to him. Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. That's right, too. We belong to him. But the Lord says that he gave himself in a special way to his people. He was their portion. He was to be their precious possession. That's what it means to fear him. It means that he is yours and you are his. I am my beloved and he is mine. We own the Lord, so to speak, not like an idol, but in a real way. He is the most valuable thing in our hearts. He is our treasure. Is the Lord your treasure? Idols cannot be that for you. They cannot give themselves to you in any satisfying way, really, because really they aren't real. They can't do anything, much less give themselves to you. If they are valuable to you, it's all in your head. But he who is the portion of Jacob is not like these. Fear the Lord alone, and you'll be satisfied forever. Sadly, Judah would not. Judah refused to fear the Lord alone and instead continued to fear the gods of the nations. They chose to worship the scarecrow in the melon patch. They refused to heed this warning so the Lord would bring his judgment. Verse 17. Gather up your belongings to leave the land, you who live under siege. For this is what the Lord says. At this time I will hurl out those who live in this land. I will bring distress on them so that they may be captured. The Lord was supposed to be their most precious possession, but now they will have to gather up all of their possessions because they're going to be uprooted. They're going to be hurled. It's literally like the slingshot. They're going to be slung out of this land into exile, out into captivity. And boy, is it going to hurt. Verse 19, Woe to me because of my injury. My wound is uncurable. Yet I said to myself, this is my sickness and I must endure it. I think Jeremiah is speaking for Judah and for Jerusalem here. He's lamenting the pain that's going to come. Verse 20, my tent is destroyed. And all its ropes are snapped. My sons are gone from me and are no more. No one is left now to pitch my tent or to set up my shelter. Judgment has come because of our failure to fear the Lord alone. The shepherds are senseless and do not inquire of the Lord, so they do not prosper, and all their flock is scattered. Listen, the report is coming, a great commotion from the land of the north, that's Babylon. It will make the towns of Judah desolate, a haunt of jackals, and it could have all been avoided. All this could have been avoided. But now there's nothing more than lamentations and supplications to be made. Verse 23 
I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. Correct me, Lord, but only with justice, not in your anger, lest you reduce me to nothing. I think he's still speaking for the whole nation and lumping himself in with them. He's asking for wisdom still and for God's justice and not his full anger because he knows that the Lord delights in justice. But he is asking for God's anger to be poured out on those who are coming to destroy him. Verse 25, pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the peoples who do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob, they have devoured him completely and destroyed his homeland. We will see this theme again and again in, as time goes on. Yes, Judah will be judged, and the Lord will use the sinful nations around Judah to do it, but those nations are not safe from God's judgment either. In time, the Lord will judge them for how they treated Judah, even though he used them to bring justice. That's another part of his amazing wisdom. That's another reason to fear him. But did you notice the familiar words in verse 23? that Jeremiah says about what he knows? What's it sound like to you? To me, it sounds a lot like question one of the Heidelberg Catechism. I'll bet those German Christians have been reading Jeremiah 10, 23. I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. You're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. I am not my own. I don't belong to me. The life I live is borrowed. I'm just a steward of it. My life belongs to Yahweh. And if you're a Christian, yours does too. We might make some de decisions along the way, but the Lord directs our steps. How powerful are idols? They are powerful to bird brains and blockheads. They have just as much power in our lives as we give them. They were powerful enough to take down the entire nation of Judah and catapult it into exile. But the idols didn't do that, not themselves. They're just like scarecrows in a melon patch, worthless, powerless, and senseless. Do not fear them. As the Apostle John would say, little children, keep yourselves from idols. The Lord, on the other hand, is incomparably valuable, incomprehensibly powerful, and incredibly wise. Fear Him alone. Make the Lord your portion, your treasure. Trust in Him with your whole heart. Give Him your whole life. It doesn't belong to you anyway. And fear Him alone.